like that 30 seconds before the landslide, somebody has to get hit with lightning, and then five minutes before that, the flood comes. Here we go. Uh, we have a commercial here right off the bat. <laughs> hey, George. I feel like hitting out a few fly balls here. Good morning. Uh, you'll find that uh, I have a tendency to be very dangerous on Saturdays. Saturday is a dangerous day. Hi, George. I'm walking along 49th Street now more than 10 minutes ago, and I feel it in the air already. It's, uh, it's the, it's, uh, it's just Saturday. That's all. Saturday is the dime store day. Or it all, yes, I don't know why that is. Saturday is a dime store day. It's as though the whole world has a dark, maroon kind of mahogany woodwork. And there's that dime store smell in the air. All that dime store candy and you know, all that stuff in the dime store. Uh, have you have you been in the dime store recently? Or do you call it the five and dime? Or is it the five and ten to you? Well, in the Midwest, it's called the dime store. And uh, in the dime store these days, of course, uh, there's more shouting than anything else goes on in dime stores. You can't hear. Your ears are jiggling constantly. There's the, the, the sound of a guy saying, Step out right up, ladies and gentlemen. In just a few moments, we're going to begin to give away... These wonderful ballpoint pens. Now, of course, our only object in giving these away is to make sure that many people are using them so that other people will see them, and they will be on the market very shortly. They will be on the market very shortly, and when they get on the market, ladies and gentlemen, they will cost over $7.95. However, for those of you who are fortunate enough to be here at this time, fortunate enough to be right here at this very moment, we are going to make these pens available to you absolutely as a gift. Absolutely as a gift. Now, of course, to show your good faith, we're going to require a nominal, a nominal payment, a payment that just pays for the advertising of this beautiful, wonderful ballpoint pen that writes forever, that continues to have a beautiful, easy, smooth working point for years and years on end. We will also include with this pen an ever-sharpening paring knife. An ever-sharpening paring knife with a non-burnable plastic handle. Now, step right up. Have you noticed when these guys are doing this, when they're trying to gather a tip, as Long John would call it, they, they don't look out at the crowd. They're looking down. They're rearranging all their stuff all the time. So they're, they're bus this is all part of the technique, you know. They're very businesslike. Ladies and gentlemen, now step right up. For those of you who have been fortunate enough to be here at this time, you're going to find yourself going home with a wonderful... Ladies and gentlemen, step right up. You know, shuffling things back and forth. And I'm over there trying to buy myself some jelly beans. Ladies and gentlemen, I hear the sound of this roar, and I... By George, I'm back home again. The world is a gigantic skin game. And uh, there's just two kinds of people. There are the people who skin, and then there are the people who get skinned. And I, I suppose being one or the other is no more fun than being the other, because the guy who gets skinned invariably feels that he's gotten a good deal, and the guy who does the skinning invariably feels he's gotten a good deal. And as a matter of fact, all of us are in the end, in the t total ultimate end, here to be skinned anyway. And so it really doesn't make any difference. It's just a little momentary victories here and there, you know. Like like the other day, I'm walking on 38th Street, you know. The, the, the world... The world is a kind of a... Well, I've often wondered just how much how much of what we see, how much of what we think, and how much of what we dream and put together is, is, is a kind of projection of, uh, of an image of what we want things to be. And, and things never are, actually. 
I'm walking on 38th Street, way over on the west side, and oh, this is real fist-fighting neighborhood over there. You know, <laughs> oh boy, this this oh, I mean, this is uh, this is a real neighborhood over there. See, and I'm walking along there, and here's this tumble-down old building. It's about four stories high, and on the bottom bottom level there, there's an old uh, what looks like the, an X hardware shop that's been deserted 50 years ago now, and it's full of old barrels and stuff, and the windows are dirty and so on. There's 50 kids running in and out, and, you know, the whole business, and you can hear a couple of people having a fight on a second floor. It's going on, and I, it's just one of these Babel, you know, tower-type things, and it's all sort of sinking in the ground, and on the, on the ground floor, there's a little sign, neatly lettered, that says, Penthouse for Rent. Penthouse for rent, and I could just see some guy renting this penthouse for about four dollars a month, and it's this, you know, it's chimneys, all clotheslines, chicken coops, uh, pigeon roosts, and everything all around him. He's living in his penthouse, and he's writing back home to Ohio. Uh, yes, mother, I'm not here in New York more than two weeks, and already I'm living in a penthouse. <laughs> yeah, sit down there, will you? Oh, yes, we have a commercial here for Boneless Chuck Pot Roast. Boneless Chuck Pot Roast sounds like uh, at least five guys that I've worked with. <laughs> I'm sorry. You all missed that. Boneless Chuck Pot Roast sounds like at least five salesmen that I've worked with in the past five years. <laughs> Hi, Chuck. How are you out there? Oh, Chuck Pot Roast. Boneless as they come. His mother used to call them spineless. Of course, this is a new world. Boneless Chuck Pot Roast. Look to your A&P supermarket for outstanding values every day of the week. For example, one of this week's many money-saving meat specials is on A&P's super-right quality boneless Chuck Pot Roast. <laughs> You'll find old Chuck down there in the meat department. Sale priced at only 65 cents a pound. And he's boneless with no fat added. The fat that he has has been with him for years. So you pay only for the meat that comes to your table. You get A&P's famous super-right quality chuck, <laughs> cut from grain-fed steer beef, and every roast is cut and trimmed to A&P's exacting standards. So drop in and see old boneless chuck pot roast at only 65 cents the pound at your nearby A&P supermarket in nearby New Jersey and in greater New York. That's opposed to lesser New York. No A&P's there. It's like the first time I found out that there was a greater auk. That's A-U-K. That's a word for you to look up. And now while you're looking up that word, we will move on to the mysterious, sinister city of Philadelphia. <coughs> as a matter of fact, as you know, a crack is appearing in the outskirts of Philadelphia that has defied all expert analysis. And in fact, it has swallowed up already several bystanders. <laughs> including one PR man who came there as the result of attempting to make the thing look like something that it wasn't. He is gone now into the bowels of the earth. Incidentally, speaking of the bowels of the earth, I'll never forget one time I'm a kid saying, <laughs> you know, kids, kids, kids think about what is under there, what is under there, They're under the ground. Most adults, as they get older and walk around, by the way, we're going to start a program of adult education um, here on this program. You know, we're always talking about kids, you know, what, what kids should read and all that stuff. And from the letters that I've read from the kids, they don't need any education. I mean, they're four miles ahead of their old man, most of them. As a matter of fact, you know, it is interesting that, that more young people, you get out to the paper book gallery, this is not a commercial, so don't write that. You get out to the paper book gallery or any good place where they're selling paper books these days, and you will find 
that the average age of the person standing around and buying books of exceedingly uh, interesting quality is roughly about 19. This is intriguing. And where do you find the old man? You find the old man in some place buying a magazine called Whoopi. Uh, you know, the, with the center fold out with the chick made out of paper. And, uh, you know, this whole business. Either that or you will find him uh, getting his the latest copy of the Reader's Digest. Really, there's, there's something that happens. I don't know whether these people who read this tripe... Uh, no, 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 don't go... Oh, tripe is now a very, very sinister word. I do not know whether or not the people who read this, this mediocre stuff, whether they started out reading good stuff and went downhill or what, or whether reading this, this, this trivia is, is a step up for them. I can't tell which it is. Uh, I'd like to know that the countless people who spend their hours reading things like uh, <clears throat> the Duchess of Windsor tells all, you know, this kind of thing, uh, or how does Cary Grant continue to stay so young even though he's 104? <laughs> this kind of, oh, you know, oh, it makes me pop out in hives. And, and, and I hear these people constantly on the radio recommending that you read this stuff. They say, oh, there's a wonderful article in this week's well, Whoopie Doopie magazine, and it's a wonderful, wonderful article. Ladies, you're going to just want to read it. It's about how Marilyn Monroe had a big argument with Pandit Nehru. It's called, and it's a dialogue, like the other day I'm hearing this, it's a dialogue between Marilyn Monroe and Pandit Nehru. Wonderful, wonderful. It's just terrific. And then there's a, a wonderful article on the spring fashions. And, you know, they're talking about the spring fashions. We're, we, are, we are so shot full of hypocrisy, I don't think we know which end is up. The other day, I'm looking at the New York Times. No, seriously, I'm, 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 I'm very intrigued by this, this quality of double talk that we all live with. I can remember just a few years ago, and I'll listen, you don't, no, don't, don't keep writing, listen for a minute. I can remember just a few semesters ago, what are you people writing in there for? Heaven says more writing's going on here. Uh, I, I'm always suspicious of people who, when they listen to you, they write. You know, I expect any minute now to get a phone call. Would you please give me your serial number? <laughs> you want my serial number? one six zero nine eight nine four six. There it is. My rank? Of course you know what my rank is. You can see it in my eyes. I can't hide my rank. But the, but the thing is that, that I, I, I'm very intrigued by this quality of double talk. Now here, I don't know whether you saw it in the New York Times a couple of days ago. And, and to me... Uh, the biggest, and this is no commercial, I am not connected in any way, shape, or form with the Times, but the biggest nickel, I'm always surprised that I get a Times for a nickel. I mean, that is an incredible buy, you know that? You get, you get the whole panoply, the whole ridiculousness of it all, you know, poured into one big thing there. It's, I, I'm, I, I can hardly, I, I'm, I'm chuckling from one end to the other, the Times. <laughs> and, and in many ways that I shouldn't be, I suppose. The ponderous pronouncements of the critics and the... You know, you get this great... As though, it's a funny thing. It's, it's as though there's, there's the lesser breed of people. Have you ever wondered whether or not the people who write official things are really actually bigger than you are? It wouldn't surprise me at all if Brooks Atkinson were 35 feet tall. Seriously, you know, a big concrete shoe is walking along and look down upon the poor scrabblings of us lesser mortals grubbling along on our knees there trying to make the, you know, the best of all possible worlds turn into the most easily livable of all possible worlds. But nevertheless, I'm, I'm going along there seeing I'm, I'm, I come across this page of fashions. And listen to this. Uh, this is the way it went. I'll paraphrase it. 
uh, speaking of uh, tripe, this is WORAM and FM New York, and we will be here till just before the opera. <laughs> they put a cushion between me and the opera now. <laughs> chicken, OR, chicken, chicken. Can't take it. <laughs> but I'm going through the times the other day. See, I'm sitting in the bus, and I come across this, this page of fashions. Now, this is not a program where anybody's going to sit around and talk about whether women's fashions are ridiculous or not. This is not at all what I'm here to do. And it, it doesn't matter a whit to me. What, it, what does interest me, though, however, is the interesting kind of double talk that we constantly indulge ourselves in. For example, I remember just a few years ago, like, say, 1958, I'm not talking about 5,000 years ago. Uh, they used to talk about the fashions of the 20s as being boyish and as being anti-feminine. They said that, that, the bo that the boyish fashions of the 1920s were a new low in rotten, ridiculous fashions. This is what they used to say a couple of years ago. And when people went to parties and tried to be funny, they would wear something from the 20s. This was considered very, very, uh, you know, very, very funny type stuff to wear. Absolutely flat, no, nothing. Just straight line, nothing. Just ridiculous little things, see? And, and if there's anything that is anti-feminine, it is the fashion attitude of the 1920s, or was, I should say. Uh, it flattens out everything, and anything that was there is not there. You know, you know what I mean? Do I have to draw pictures here? Okay, okay. So here's what happens, see? Now, that was in, in about 58, they were all 59, all the way up to 60, they would say this. And in fact, there used to be an occasional article, boy, do you remember the ridiculous stuff they wore in the 20s? Ha, ha, ha. You know, this, this, you know that kind of tongue-in-cheek stuff. Well, here's what happens. I'm going through there, and here's a, a page of, of pictures of fashions right out of the 20s. It says, uh, um, Juan Balenciaga, or whatever his name is, uh, surprised the entire fashion world yesterday with his new show. Uh, his new show consisted of actual patterns copied from the 1920s with no changes, nothing. He reproduced the 1920s fashions from old patterns and surprised the fashion world. Uh, the thing that was particularly stunning about these new fashions was that they are now ultra-feminine, superb ultra-feminine, and the beautiful, it brings out all the feminine, blah, blah, ultra-feminine, feminine, feminine, feminine. I said, what are you talking about? It's quite the opposite. And, and uh, I, I guess it depends on what you call feminine. And then again, it's the double talk. And I can assure you, the same person who was writing this was writing quite the opposite of that one year ago or the year before, whenever they wrote about the 20s. Now, this is just a tiny... Who cares about fashions? I am saying this is true in spades in almost every other area of human endeavor. This, this ability to, to completely reverse your field... Uh, and complete, which, which of course, uh, is very convenient, because then you're always au courant. <laughs> I mean, you're always with whatever is around, and you are never. And one of the really, uh, one of the really difficult things, of course, that must be faced by everyone who is attempting to make any kind of a, of a, a plunk in, uh, in uh, public life, is that you never want to be caught saying whatever is hip at this moment isn't hip. Because that makes you sort of unhip, you know. You say, oh, come on, that's a miserable picture. Now, what do you mean, miserable picture? That's the new wave. Because, yeah, new wave, they just used to call it out-of-focus photography a couple of years ago. Oh, no, 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 you can't, you don't understand. I mean, this is, this is a serio-tragedy drama. Oh, serio-tragedy drama. Come on, will you get off my back? 
I mean, uh, it's like everybody makes movies starting out with no story, and they work awfully hard to try to find one somewhere. In fact, you know that I know one of the big hit movies started out, in case you're interested. Uh, are you interested in, in the behind-the-scenes stories of movies? I mean, really? The kind of stuff that Hedda Hopper never tells? Well, I'll tell you what happened. I know a producer who had about three and a half million bucks in the kick. And <laughs> that means dough. And so he was he, he had no story, see, he had nothing no 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 material. But he had a star. So this star, who was a very, very big name, went out and rounded up three or four other stars, and they sat around and they had a couple of drinks, and one of them says, Let's do a western. He says, Okay, let's do a western. And so they knew where they could rent a western set. <laughs> so they went out to the western set and the guy says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll get in the horse there, and I'll ride into town. And so they started to photograph the thing, and they photographed 98 million feet of film. They edited it down, and now they got the first existentialistic Western. No story at all. They just said, well, I'll tell you what you do now. You walk through that door, and you look for the sheep rancher's daughter. And they, in, in short, it was all ad-libbed. Nothing wrong with ad-libbing. Except that the point is you have to have a point about, around which you ad-lib. I mean, ad-libbing per se... And so you see that. Did you, you ever hear this? You know, it's funny how, how I, I think about 98% of the people are cowed. Uh, by cowed, I mean they are impressed by, by any kind of achievement because most people don't achieve anything. And they're, they're fantastically impressed by a guy that does anything, anything. And, and so anybody that does, makes a little movie or, or writes a little itty-bitty play or anything like this is very, very impressive to them. I know a guy who wrote a play once in 1932. He has been making a fortune on the lecture circuit ever since, lecturing about plays to ladies in the Kiwanis Club and the Benet Brith and so on. <laughs> His play ran for about four days in the Provincetown Playhouse. And he's in all the anthologies. Now, as mentioned there, you see. And he makes this a tremendous thing. People are just impressed by anybody that does anything. If you ever designed a sled or, or if you... <laughs> If you ever flew a kite, did you, did you know that I knew the guy who once held the endurance kite record for the state of Indiana? He flew a box kite for over 17 weeks, never brought it down, rain or shine, stood out there in the fields. This is a fact. And, and for a long while, he was a celebrity around Indiana. Then, you know, box kites went out of fashion, and poor guy's been trying to make a comeback. Tried yo-yos for a while, sat on the top of a flagpole for a couple of months. Nothing happened, you know. Do you remember when they used to t take off in airplanes and fly around fields for 16 weeks? Do you remember that? With a big question mark marked on the side. It says, 59th straight day. <laughs> I mean, no one quite knew what it was all about or why, but the point is these guys are flying around up there. And he, I remember my old man, he was, a, he was a sucker for this kind of, a real patsy for this. Uh, wherever anybody was roller skating on one foot, he had to go and see him. And I went to more hippodromes. Do you ever go to a hippodrome? I mean, I'll never, um, my eardrums are still jiggling once in a while from the hippodrome. He took me to this place where they had, it was like a bowl, a wooden bowl, see. Now, now, uh, these are the things that would be very difficult to explain to giraffes or uh, probably even chipmunks. E yeah, oh, of course, of course. I'm a kid. Let me tell you the first time I, I'm, I'm a little kid, see. And my fa they used to broadcast the dance marathons on the radio. You did? Well, I'm a kid. See, I'm just a little squirt. And, and every day at, at 12.30, my mother had to listen to the dance marathon. 
And the announcer would say, Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking to you from Mickey Isley's ballroom on the outskirts of South Chicago, where the Great White Way meets Lake Michigan. We're at White City, where the dance marathon, which is now going on under the jurisdiction of Mickey Isley, it's now in its 423rd day. Jackie Jackie and Whoopi Whoopi, the leading team, have just completed a fantastic sprint of 17 straight minutes of jitterbugging. You can probably still hear the crowd cheering. And they have collected $600 in sprint money. The standings right now are couple number 41, Jackie Jackie and Whoopi Whoopi, are in the lead with 7,922 points. The second couple, number 22, Fred Fred and Myrtle Myrtle, are in the second spot. Yes, now they've just there. They're making a change on the scoreboard there. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the score now, yes, uh, Fred Fred and Myrtle Myrtle are now being scored with 6,923 and a half points, ladies and gentlemen. They have just added two and three quarter points to Fred Fred and Myrtle Myrtle's point. And uh, in third place is... Uh, let's see, in third place is Mickey Mickey and, uh, Junie Junie there in third place. The wonderful new couple that have just joined us, and they've done such great jobs, ladies and gentlemen, in the sprints. Uh, they are now in third place. They're the Wonder Team, the Dark Horse Team from Blue Island, Illinois, representing Harold's Bowling Alley. They're now in third place with 5,923 and a quarter points. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we are just about to begin a sprint. Uh, the orchestra is tuning up. If you can listen carefully in the background, would you please correct the PA system there? We have a little feedback. We will return you to our main studios until we have the technical difficulties under correction. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, before we return you, Jackie Jackie and Myrtle Myrtle are in the lead with 7,923 points. Uh, this is the Dance Marathon returning you to our main studio. Take it away, main studio. The Dance Marathon will return to you as soon as we have our technical difficulties under correction there. Ladies and gentlemen... <laughs> And I'm a kid, of course, this sort of thing scars you for life, you know. You begin to wonder about the, the total texture of the society in which you have been placed. <laughs> and, and so, as a, as a big gift on my birthday, my old man and the whole crowd of us went down. <laughs> See, I've got technical difficulties on feedback. It's catching. You know, I, I know a guy who died of inverse feedback. <clears throat> <clears throat> Terrible thing. He just sat there and hummed away. Uh, but <laughs> it was just a mere shadow of himself. But but uh, <laughs> I remember they took me down there on my birthday to see the dance marathon, and and of course it was considered a big surprise for me. And and I, it, it's awful, you know, when you're a kid, you have to pretend you're surprised a good deal of the time, and you have to also pretend that you're very happy a good deal of the time. Like when Aunt Min comes, you have to make with the thing, you know, and she has to come over and kiss you. I had an aunt who had a mustache. And, uh, you know, and, and she never shaved very closely. And every time she would kiss me, I would get it in the left ear. It was, you know, very embarrassing. And then I had an uncle who insisted on always kissing me, too, you know. And, and he was a cigar smoker. And he'd come over, pow, on the left ear all the time. My ear got bigger and bigger and softer and softer until the rutabaggies growing in it, and the whole bit of vines, the whole stuff. 
And so I'm down there watching the marathon dance, and it was a wild time. I'll never forget it. This is one of one of the uh, one of the scenes that is em- emblazoned, you know, like some guys have great scenes of enormous battles in World War II emblazoned. I don't remember anything of the war really, but I sure remember the dance marathon. <laughs> There's a trio sitting down at the end, way down there, and this is cheesy dance hall, and they had a, a, a stands kind of built around it, like a little uh, you know a little amphitheater, and the large fat ladies are sitting around eating popcorn, and short squat men drinking near beer. And everyone's sitting around there, and there's guys walking up and down selling souvenirs and stuff. And in the middle, here were these people all sort of moving around. By the way, the same people who watch dance marathons are the same crowd that go to roller derbies. This is all kind of a substrate. They go to roller derbies, and they go to wrestling. You know, it's the same crew. Yeah. Yeah, the whole business. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's an interesting thing. And they, they go to midget auto races. And and they uh, all the and, and and stock car races, you know, all this. It's a it's a very interesting substrate of humanity. It's, I think it's a special. Uh, actually, I think really it's a, it's a breed within a breed. I don't think sociologists really investigated man closely enough, because there are many breeds within breeds. And so he, here's the roller. Later, of course, they were roller derby crews. That, and oh yeah, and and also they go to they go to pro basketball. Some of them. Uh, there's this uh, it's very. <laughs> You know, and and they get all excited over this. And, and I remember the, the the big team from Blue Island, Illinois, was having an enormous sprint against the team from Harvey, Illinois. And everyone wore these these silk shirts. You remember those the funny things? And I'm a kid, Sam, sitting there, and my father and my mother are all excited. They're hollering, "Come on, Jackie, Jackie, come on, boy, come on, we're with you, boy!" Hey, hey! And these people are sort of dragging around, and the band is playing String of Pearls. Rink a tink, 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 and they're moving back and forth, and they're having a sprint, see? And I thought a sprint, you know, you did something when you had a sprint. Well, they just moved a little faster in a sprint. Oh, they're just dragging around. And then at the end of the sprint, everybody throws nickels out there on the stage, and a guy walks around and picks them all up. And here is this guy. I'll tell you who the guy It's a wild moment. The guy who is doing all this. Then there's an MC. The MC walks out there in the middle of the floor when things are cool and calm, when they're just dragging a little bit. And there's that big scoreboard. It says, "Now in its 1600th year, the fantastic Mickey Isley Danceathon." Mickey Isley was the name of the guy who had the band. <laughs> it was one way to get your band to work, you know. <laughs> Gee, what a weird time. And so uh, after after this uh, after the the sprint, a guy would come out and he'd say, "Well, ladies and gentlemen, and now here he is. Here's the MC Red Red is going to play and sing for you and give you a little uh, just a little entertainment while we're waiting for the next sprint to begin. So step up and let's hear it, Red." That was Mickey talking, see. And then this guy comes. He comes out and he starts doing the tap. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. You know, funny thing happened to me coming down to the dance hall today. <laughs> now I'm going to do my famous imitation of Jimmy Stewart. And I'm watching this guy down there. And this went on for about four hours. And finally, they took me home with smoke in my eyes. You know, feeling rotten. Well, I'll tell you who the guy was. Very weird thing. The guy who was the MC at the danceathon that I saw later turned out to be. Red Red Skelton. It was Red Skelton. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, and I'm just a little kid. I'm, you know, I'm wondering, and uh, this is going on, and all business. And, and so...
what's made Winston the biggest selling filter cigarette in the country. And the reason for Winston flavor? Filter blend. Exclusive Winston tobaccos up ahead of the pure white filter. I did that long ago. You just didn't hear it. See, you guys it are It all right. comes down Hello. to this. Flavor Hello. is what smoking is all about. Is that what? So get the filter cigarette. That explains it all. <laughs> Full, rich tobacco flavor. Get Winston. Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. See, you were, you, were, you were writing there and you didn't hear me make the break. See what I mean? He heard it. He wasn't writing. <laughs> What's the matter now? Don't I? Now, now you, didn't you hear me make it? Now, um, let's do a couple more here. A and P Y Valentine. You got you got a Valentine in there? Okay. All right. This really looks severe, boy. Everyone to follow proves Ballantine is the light beer with true lager flavor. Since 1840, America's finest. There we go. And now let's see. Oh, yeah. Hey, listen. Um, speaking of, oh, yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> no, I don't really. I don't know. I was, uh, I was fascinated. You know, I, I really believe that out of uh, ten people, just take ten people at random, and if you were to ask these ten people, of course you, you hear it on the radio more than anything else, uh, almost every person who is on the radio, I find, these are, the, these are the popular mediums, not radio alone, but television, and the popular magazines have a set of beliefs that are immovable. Uh, now, and they all believe the same thing. For example, uh, just this is a very rough example. You can always trust a man who has a dog. You know, this kind of thing. <laughs> uh, now, now, that's a very rough example. Or things like this. Uh, beatniks wear beards. This is a the considered opinion of many of them. And then uh, such things as, uh, you know, uh, I believe that uh, old people should move to Florida when they, when they retire. Yes, sir. You know, this kind of thing, deep thinking. Uh, things like, um, you know, I, I think, uh, <laughs> I, I think, you know, by George, I'll tell you what I think. I think that people should read better books. This sort of thing. Very, very 
deep sort of thing. Or um, I think that movie producers have a great responsibility to the youth of the nation. Uh, the, the, the real very deep things. And these, these are all thoughts which are held by all... Of course, the point is that none of them are thoughts at all. These are kind of can't. These are things that people say. Uh, such things as... Uh, as uh, uh, it's very important for many, many a marriage. You know, one of the things that holds a marriage together is children. This kind of thing. As a matter of fact, they refuse to concede that many a marriage has been broken up by children. Uh, but nevertheless, this is the kind of thing that's held. And these are very important beliefs <laughs> that are held. Now, uh, what I'm getting at is this, that you listen to one of these shows or you listen to people talking like, and you know exactly what they're going to say on any given subject. Uh, so this is very soothing to large numbers of people who have no thoughts either, who only believe what they read at the bottom of calendars. And in fact, I, I had a very frightening call the other day that was not to me. And this, is, this is something that, that should be... Uh, I'll just tell you what happened. You can, you can uh, put two and two together. I was in the office here, and there's a lot of telephones around. And, and I was in my office, as a matter of fact, and there's about nine different people who occupy that office. Uh, Arlene Francis's secretary is in. It's a real menagerie. It's the one place where everybody in the, in the station steers clear of. Ed and Peggy and Fitzgerald. By the way... Uh, I don't like to add fuel to a mounting controversy, but uh, the Long John thing that, that John has been doing about Ed and Pegeen is true. Uh, it's very difficult to accept truth uh, in, in any shape or form. But, but Pegeen comes in, and I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in my office back, and it's, it's a funny thing. I wish somebody would, would, would come in and record this. I think it's one of the most remarkable forensic tricks of our time. To hear Pegine in the next room warming up for her radio show. You know, she does both voices. Uh, uh, she does the Ed Fitzgerald voice. And it's, it's, she can't get right into it at first. It takes her about 15 or 20 minutes. And the way she warms up is on the telephone. She makes phone calls in the Ed Fitzgerald voice. And the first two or three calls are very, uh, very you can you hear them. And, and she calls things like, calls things like uh, information at, at Grand Central and asks a question. And finally she works into it, and then you can hear it come. It, it really comes. And then about three minutes before the air, you know, she's ready for business. But nevertheless, it's a menagerie. This is a wild, swinging place. So the other day, a phone rang. Nobody's there on one of the desks, which I will not... It doesn't make any difference which one it was. Seeing that with the, the phone was ringing, ringing and ringing and ringing. Uh, the operators here have a theory that if you ring a phone long enough, somebody will have to answer and it doesn't even make any difference who answers as long as it's, uh, you know, just ring, 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 ring. And so it's ringing and ringing and ringing. Obviously, no one is going to answer it who is, who's official or who, who they want. So anyway, I finally picked the phone up. I said, hello. And there's this, there's this Shrap-type lady on the, end, the other end of the line. Perfect voice. She goes, hello, hello. And I could tell it was an angry one. Hello, 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 hello. And I said, hello, may I help you, please? Yes, uh, I would like to speak to Arlene Francis. I said, well, Miss Francis is on the air. I'm sorry. I've, what do you mean she's on the air? I said, well, she's on the radio now. Can you hear her? Yes, I'm listening to her. Would you please get her to the phone? I said, well, madam, how can she be talking to you on the telephone and, and, and doing a radio program? What? Well, how can she be talking to you and doing a radio program at the same time? She's on the radio. What do you mean? 
you mean by that? Well, she's on the radio. You you just said you you heard her? Yes, I'm listening to her. And I'd like to... Well, I'm, maybe you can help me. Why does Miss Francis uh, lately... Uh, why does she insist on having controversial interviews? Controversial interviews? Uh, wh- what do you mean, controversial interviews? Well, she's having these... Contra- W.O.R. used to be such a nice, friendly... A family station, and I love it so. But why does she insist on having these controversial interviews? I said, well, what controversial interviews? Here she's just interviewing some poor guy who grows potted geraniums or something, and I'm listening to it, and I said, what, what are you talking about, madam? And the speaker is playing in the corner. And she's, she goes on, she says, Well, I, 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 I don't know why she insists on having controversial interviews. Madam, may I ask you what you mean by controversial? What did you say? May I ask you what you mean by controversial? You don't mean to tell me you believe the way she does, do you? Madam, I don't believe any way. I'm merely asking you what you mean by controversial. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to turn the station off and never listen again. Oh. Well, apparently controversial means the way she doesn't think. Isn't it interesting that, that anything you disagree with is controversial and anything you agree with is right? <laughs> it's fascinating. <laughs> I'm sure that to Hitler, the subject of gas ovens wasn't controversial at all, obviously. <laughs> it's a very strange thing. It's an interesting phenomenon. And so uh, I believe this, getting back to the subject of the discussion here, that there are a certain set of beliefs that are held by what appears to be the majority of the people. Now, <clears throat> these beliefs, invariably, I have found, are based almost totally on an emotional absorption of some kind of viscous fluid that the person grew up with. It has nothing to do with thinking. These are, not, these are not thoughts, they're beliefs. Believe me, there's a great deal of difference between thought and belief. In, in case you're interested, look up idea and then look up belief. <laughs> Two different things entirely. And so when somebody says, I believe so-and-so, that does not mean he has thought about it. Most people fight thinking tooth and nail because when you start thinking, then you run into all kinds of terrible deep shoals and dark waters where beyond which you lack of knowledge, misinformation, plain stupidity, everything else starts getting in your way. So it's much easier to believe things. I believe so-and-so. <laughs> That's all. Hardly anyone thinks past it. And, and interestingly enough, we even base a great deal of our testing systems on these beliefs. That a person who believes these things is generally considered by the people who do the testing, vocational testing and all that stuff, as a more stable person. And these are in capital letters. A person that is more fitted for the job. Capital letters. Now, to give you an idea, a kid here says to me, he sent me a letter. I don't think I have enough time. How much time do I have? 259. Oh, well, that's all right. A kid sends me a letter, see, and he says, Shepard, he says, I'm sitting in this idiotic high school out in the suburbs. And he says, and they, 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 they believe in testing. <clears throat> Not testing you on your subjects, no. They believe on constantly testing you on your aptitudes and various things that they call your, uh, your skills and abilities. These are all in capital. They never test me on arithmetic. They're always testing me on, on other things. And he says, and after you've taken about a dozen of these tests, you know the answers that they want. 
There are multiple choice questions like, uh, what would you rather be? <clears throat> a streetcar conductor, an advertising executive, or a bum? <laughs> and and uh, if, you, if you say streetcar conductor, obviously, you're, you're in the second rank already. And he says, you know, he says, and after a while, you get so that you automatically can answer them all. You can either get a hundred by answering them all. And if you answer them truthfully, he says, you're bound to be in trouble all the way down the line. And he says, I am sending you under separate cover an exact copy of one of the tests. He says, this is a test that has to do with vocations. He says, read these things and then, then think carefully about it. He says, here, for example, is one of the things they ask you. Uh, he says, here, uh, what people, he says, you're supposed to say, which of these people do you like the most? Which do you dislike the most? Uh, check the one that you would most rather be with, the people you'd most like. <clears throat> uh, average, that's one type of person. Queer-looking people with unusual ideas. Do you notice they couple unusual ideas with queer-looking people? Queer-looking people with unusual ideas or carefree people. He said, obviously, you're supposed to underscore average. <laughs> carefree people are dangerous. Queer-looking people with unusual ideas. Oh, terrible stuff. And he says, what am I going to do? He says, I happen to like people with unusual ideas. He says, so I'm... I'm, I'm he says, no, I know better than to underline that one. Just and they go on and then they ask me these questions like this, he says. Uh, here, these are uh, ideas for uh, various jobs and so forth. He says, what would you rather do? Have friends, have power, have fame. Which would you underscore there? He says, well, everybody secretly wants power. That's what they want. He says, but you're supposed to underscore have friends. That's very important. He says, and everybody knows that that isn't what you want. And then there's another one. He says, uh, what would you rather be? A piano tuner, a school teacher, or a dentist? And he says, half the kids I know would love to be a piano tuner. <laughs> he says, I don't know one kid that would like to be a dentist. He says, most kids, a school teacher, maybe. He says, but what you're supposed to underscore is dentist. He says, he knows this. Work in a candy factory, keep bees, or give eye examinations. And so there's a whole series of things. And if you ask anyone these things, oh, speaking of a whole series of things, uh, this is old Friendly Shepherd. I'll be back in 15 minutes following the news. We get this call from this friendly type school teacher. So, well, Mr. Shepherd, we, hey, the child should uh, underline the things he really believes. <laughs> No, no, madam, you've missed the point. Uh, the point of the discussion is he knows the things that he really believes, but he also knows another thing that all of us know, and that is that one is judged and graded by these tests. You are put in different categories, and that's in capital letters. And there are more desirable categories than others. Admitted, baby? We all know that some categories are preferred to others. What my young correspondent was saying is that everyone secretly knows the things you're supposed to answer to be put into the preferred categories. And if you, if you deny this or argue with it, I refer you to a book by William White. Uh, Mr. White, who was one of the uh, editors, I believe still is, one of the editors of Fortune magazine. What was the name of the book? Now, I wish I... I, I read the thing a couple of years ago, and it was an interesting sociological treatise on the business world today. 
uh, Protestant by William White. Now, come on. Uh, it's in the same general category uh, as the the current popular socio-economic books by Vance Packard, but this was far more scholarly and in many ways had more humor. Mr. Packard writes with no humor whatsoever. Uh, William White, what's the name of his book? Uh, come on. It was a compilation of articles that ran in Fortune, and one of the chapters was on test passing. And he was saying, look, forget about the test. His general attitude was, uh, you know the correct answers that they want, the ones that they want you to answer. Regardless of what you believe, answer them. He says, he says, because this is the way the system is. His general feeling was, this is the system, and since it is the system, you have to work within it. And since you have to look out for your own leaky rowboat, answer these questions this way. And he had a whole series of tests, the, the way that the, that the categorizers wanted you to answer them. And almost all of them were completely based on a concept of bright, placid optimism and friendly mediocrity. And by the way, this is not a new thing. This is not a new thing. This is called generally putting up a front. And the putting up a front technique is as old as the hills, and it's only recently been codified and put into test form. As a matter of fact, the kid goes along and he includes a few more of the other questions. He says, he says get, get this one. What would you rather do? Advise people on personality improvement, catch rare animals, or cash checks? He says, as though they're all mutually independent. He says, I happen to know some people who would like to catch rare animals, also at times like to advise people on personality improvements, and they love cashing checks. He says, what a, what a ridiculous question. He says, so, he says, and as a matter of fact, most people who, who catch rare animals enjoy cashing checks inordinately. And he says, and he happens to know many people who advise people on personality improvements whose whole business is to cash checks. He says, now, how are you going to answer that question? He says, so if I write cash checks down there, immediately I'm put into a second-rate category. He says, I know it. He says, if I, if I put catch rare animals down there, he says, does that ignore the fact that I also like to tell people about their personality problems? He says, so which way do you go on these ridiculous questions? And then he go, and listen to this one then. He says, listen to this, this, uh, this one here. He says, now, what would you rather do? You're supposed to check the one you'd rather do. So he says, belong to a discussion group or problems of modern life? He says, yeah, that's an interesting thought. Yeah, I think I would like to belong to a discussion group for modern life. Uh, belong to a literary discussion group. Yeah, I'd like to do that, too. Belong to an astronomy club. Yeah. So I'd like to belong to all three of them. But I'm supposed to check the one I would like to be belong to. He says, apparently they believe that people who are interested in astronomy are not interested in modern life, nor literary discussions. And conversely, people who are interested in literary discussions are not interested in modern life. He says that that makes no sense whatsoever. He says it's totally nonsensical. And he says, and this is a test that was given in one of the big high schools in suburbia here. He says, and, and the kids are, are based on this. He says, all kinds of things are put in your record on the basis of this. Then he says, here's, here's one here, he said. Now listen to this one. He says, this is a jazzy one. He says, choose which you prefer. Now listen. Put advertising circulars in cars passing a street corner. No, he said, I don't want to do that. Count cars going past the corner at different hours. No. Direct traffic at the street corner. No. I don't want to do any of them. He says, now what do you do? 
He's not going to check the one I'd rather do. He says, do I, do I want to stand out there and be a cop, direct traffic? No. He says, do I want to put ads in the cars? No. Do I want to count the cars? No. He says, now how am I going to check? He says, i got to check one. He says, and if you check none of them, it comes back and says, please check. You have missed one here. <laughs> he says, and if you don't answer one, then you're put into a terrible category. Then you're, then you're really, a, you know, you're one of those odd-looking people, as come, uh, going back to question seven, odd-looking people with unusual ideas. <laughs> and you're one to watch. He says, they, they, he says it's, like, it's like putting you between the devil and the deep blue sea half of the time. And the other time they say, which would you rather have? Would you rather be in love? Would you rather look at the stars? Would you rather uh, drink a chocolate malt? He says, all three of them are great. He says, I'd like to, uh, at, at any one given time. He says, people seem to, in these tests, have a single-mind attitude about, towards everything. Listen to this one, then. What would you rather do? <coughs> uh, write a newspaper column on current events, collect garbage, raise chickens. He says, it's obvious which one you're supposed to answer. <laughs> he says, this he says, is ridiculous stuff. He says, and serious people write these tests. And serious people grade you on these things. He says, it just it is a fantastic thing. <laughs> now, now, listen to this. Here, here, uh, here's the uh, one. Here's, you get a question of this one. Listen. Do you want to read about famous men and women? Read writers' descriptions of an ideal world. Read about the lives of early pioneers. He says, for one thing, he says, they have nothing in here about novels. He says, they don't even mention reading novels. He says, uh, do I want to read about famous men and women? Yeah, sometimes, if it's well written. He says, do I want to read writers' descriptions of an ideal world? Yes, sometimes. Except that many writers write descriptions of, of like, say, 1984. Or Aldous Huxley's Brave in the World. How do you handle that one? He says, I happen to have liked that. <laughs> he says, read about the lives of early pioneers sometimes. He says, now I'm supposed to check which one I want to read about. He says, now, now the idea, of course, is that he knows which one they want him to check to get into the right categories. <laughs> yes, would you like to catch rare animals or advise people on personality problems? Quick, come on, come on, come on, I want an answer, quick there. <laughs> here's one. Now, here, here's, the, here's, the, here's another hard one to answer here. You're given a choice here. <clears throat> Work in a candy factory... He says, no, I have no, no desire to work in a candy factory. Keep bees? No, I don't want to keep bees. Give eye examinations? No! Now what do I answer? I don't want to do any of those. All right. <laughs> and then he, he says, here's a doozy. He says, give, uh, give this one to the average daily news reader. This is one from the field. Uh, have friends, have power, have fame. He says, I want all three of them. Now, what do you answer? It's, it's oh, See, you notice they're all mutually exclusive, that if you have friends, you can't have power nor fame. If you have power, you can't have fame or friends. And if you have fame, you can't have any of the others. <laughs> he says, these things are like Alice in Wonderland. And, and the people seriously grade you on these. They're very serious. All right, children, today we're going to have a half day off. Ah, it's the PA system, you know, at 9 o'clock. says, we are going to have a half day off. The senior class will be taking the, the aptitude tests, which are given bi-yearly. 
Uh, the senior class, uh, Section 2, will file into the auditorium at 1017. Uh, the rest of you will stay in your study halls uh, until the completion of the test, which will be at 1145, at which time there will be a five-minute intermission, and then uh, Section 1 will file in for their test. Section 2 will then return to their study halls after the completion of the test. We ask you do not discuss the test with your neighbors. Do not discuss the test with your neighbors. That is all. This is Mr. Watanabe, the principal. <laughs> and this is a very serious people are giving these serious things. Which would you rather do, old man? Come on. Come on, Harry, listen. Which would you rather do? Teach arithmetic? Teach dogs tricks? <laughs> I know an arithmetic teacher who has three dachshunds. He says, now, well, how's that guy going to answer that one? Or be the secretary of a congressman. He says, now, I suppose if you mark be the secretary of a congressman, that shows that you're interested in important affairs. And if you, t if you mark teach arithmetic, that means you're an intellectual. If you want to teach dogs tricks, slob. He says, I happen to know two congressman secretaries who teach dogs tricks and who used to teach arithmetic. Oh, yeah, well, we, we've just got, we've got an almost insane desire to categorize things. And I'll tell you how insane it is that, that one of the big uh, listings magazines, you know, that lists things in, for television viewing, do you know that they refused to list my television show for weeks on end for one reason? They wouldn't put it in. They would just say, to be announced. And the reason they wouldn't was because I refused to tell them a, a week in advance what I was going to talk about and the punchlines of all the gags that I was about to put on. Have you noticed whenever you look in one of these, these uh, little TV things that says, be sure to watch Loretta Young tonight. Bob Hope pays a surprise visit to her. Oh boy, it's such a surprise. When Bob Hope pays a surprise visit, he comes in cleverly disguised as a Franciscan monk and completely fools Loretta Young. Now, after that, they are visited by her idiot cousin from Circleville, Ohio, who also is disguised, this time, as a good humor salesman. All the disguises are discovered in the last act, and Bob unreals, unveils himself as, as old Bob Hope, and everyone is surprised. It's such a surprise. Be sure to watch this surprise tonight. Well, I mean, are the people who read this thing, are they surprised then when it happens? You know, or else, have you ever noticed how they describe a movie? Uh, Jeffrey Lynn meets Priscilla Lane in this thrill-packed, wonderful movie that was given two-thirds of a star by the Daily News in 1938. Uh, Jeffrey Lynn is a test pilot, and for a long while it looks like Jeffrey Lynn is doomed. However, there is a happy ending as the two of them finally make it in the last scene, and Jeffrey lands his battered spad on the field, uh, accompanied by the cheers of Barry Fitzgerald, her old elderly uncle who designed the airplane. Hey, what is this, you know? And we have an insane desire not only to know the answers before they're given, but also to categorize everything. And, of course, this is learned very early in school. I mean, kids are always asked to categorize things. Which do you like better, writing book reviews or standing on your head? It's kind of <laughs> mutually exclusive, but nevertheless somehow coupled. And it's, uh, it's, all part of the, it's all part of the interesting tag thing. Tag, put a tag on it. Put a tag on it. Believe me, you know why most of the comics who work on, on television and radio, why, why most of them have to have canned laughter? It's because if they didn't, people wouldn't know it's funny. They have to be told it's funny. 
And so if you were to see, uh, let's say, the Danny Thomas show, have you ever wondered about these people that are doing family comedies and they're in their living room? I mean, they're in the kitchen, the living room, and you keep hearing people go, oh, where are these people sitting, supposedly? In the bedroom, watching them, laughing? Well, the reason that they have to have the canned laughter is because the comic realizes that if, if he didn't have this, nobody would know what category to put him in. And if he's categorized as comic, then people will laugh. If he isn't, ca- that's where, where my, you know, people never know. I get letters from people constantly, Dear Mr. Shepard, I, I, I have to tell you a terrible thing, but, but you know, uh, the other day when you were talking, I, was, I, I had a laugh at what you had to say. <laughs> and she's apologizing. Uh, speak for, speaking of laughs, this is WORAM of FM, New York. And uh, we'll be here until five minutes to two, just before the opera. I see them all lining up across the street for the opera. Oh, listen. One of my favorite operas is being done tonight. Uh, I, I like Turandot. Turandot today, isn't it? Isn't it Turandot this afternoon? Well, uh, this is not one of my particular favorites, but m- one of my real favorites is being done tonight at the Met, and I would love to go. Uh, this is Electra. Strauss's Electra. That is a wild opera, beautiful opera. Uh, one of the one of the greatest orchestrators of all time, and this man is one of the few people who wrote opera who really uses the orchestra uh, with the uh, with the total drama. Most most operas seem to be accompanied by an orchestra, but boy, Strauss would never would never play the orchestra down. And it's a beautiful opera. And uh, while we're on the su- yeah. The Organization Man, yeah, White's book. In case you're interested, any of you, uh, dig up uh, The Organization Man by William White of uh, Fortune magazine. He has a whole a whole uh, chapter on passing tests based on pretty much the same things that we were saying here. Uh, while, you're, while you're down there, I would suggest the paper book gallery down in the village. Now, I'm going to tell you something about the gallery. Speaking of adult education, I, I wanted to read an essay... Uh, I did not pick this up at the paper book gallery, in case you're interested. This is a, I've got a, I've probably got next to S.J. Perlman, the greatest collection of, of paper books assembled this side of, <laughs> of a paper book warehouse. I'm, I'm a compulsive buyer of the darn things, and uh, it gets expensive and lumpy. But a long time ago, I picked up a copy, now, uh, wait a minute, just hold on here. Um... Uh, a beautiful little book of essays by one of one of the truly interesting people in the world, Aldous Huxley, who wrote Brave New World and Point and Counterpoint and a lot of very interesting things. And uh, his everything he writes has a viewpoint. And one thing it has, it has a, it, it shot through uh, his writing, is an, an intense interest in life, everything in life. And he wrote a little a little description of of what an essay is. Uh, and also, well, look, I'm not going to tell you any more about it except to say this, that if you pick up, if you're going to start an adult education uh, scheme to educate yourself away from the editorial writers, I would suggest you pick up a copy of the collected essays of Aldous Huxley. Uh, I can't give you the publisher, but it's a paper book just called Collected Essays, Aldous Huxley, and the, some of them are magnificent. And uh, this this is the thing, if you're, if you're down at the paper book gallery, look for it. The Collected Essays of Aldous Huxley, one of, one of my favorite pieces of, of paper-bound material. I've, I've, I've really enjoyed it. And the next thing that I would recommend, uh, not for knowledge but wisdom, two different things. 
not for knowledge but wisdom. This is the translation of a 12th century bestiary by T.H. White. I think White is a remarkable author. And uh, on my night show, John, on my night show, beginning this coming week, I'm going to read a few selected things from one of the most beautiful little books. You know, it's, it's a true underground book. If you're interested in an underground book, I don't even know whether you can get copies of it or not. Uh, this, is, this is nothing, uh, this is not the... I just don't know whether you can get copies of it or not. This is one of the few books that I've read for a long, or in a long time. You know, I'm, I'm getting a little tired of, of the hip children's books. Uh, you know, the, the right things to read. The, the, the Coos and the Dr. Seuss's and the... They, these are all fine. I'm not... But, but it seems to me that some of the best things that have been written for children uh, not only entertain children, but do much more than that. And one of the most beautiful little books I've ever read for children. It's really not for children, but it is and it isn't. Uh, I, and what I'm saying is that I do not like books that are written for adults, but have the outward trappings of a child's book. Uh, that covers the best of two possible worlds. It, it, it really hits the childish adult right where he lives, <laughs> is what it does. But this is a magnificent little book that is not written for anybody. And because it isn't written for anybody, is good for everybody. You know what I mean? Kids dig it and people dig it. It's a book called Mistress Masham's Repose. Mistress Masham's Repose by T.H. White, one of the first things I ever read by White. White is the guy who wrote The Once and Future King. And there's a lot of that wonderful wisdom and, a, and a, just a blinding love for humanity and the fact of life itself that comes through this man's writing. If he never writes another word again, I'll say that here is one man who loved being alive and who loved people more than anything else. And don't give me the, uh, you know, don't start whipping up the flag of Norman Vincent Peale. This is another thing entirely. Mistress Masham's Repose. And if you're going down, look for it in the gallery. I don't know whether they have it or not down there. This is purely uh, a guess. I don't know. But uh, the paper book gallery will be open till 2 tonight. They're down on the, sh on the square, Sheridan Square. And uh, they're over on 6th Avenue. Oh, incidentally, speaking of the paper book gallery, on 6th Avenue at 8th Street, you know, you just take the, the 6th Avenue subway right down to the uh, 4th Street, so, you know, where it says New York uh, University stop, uh, 4th, 4th Street. Just get off, go upstairs, and you'll find you're on 6th Avenue. And right at the corner of 6th Avenue and 8th Street, Right in that whole area, you will find the paper book gallery. And right next to the paper book gallery, opened its doors officially this morning at 7 a.m. as a brand new Prexy. <laughs> I've been eating in Prexies for years. And let me tell you something about Prexies. They have the best little salad for a quarter I ever run into anywhere. Magnificent little salad. And one of the few hamburgers that literally fights back. And, and great, great French fries. But this is all beside the point. As you have noted, uh, this is the hamburger with the college education, which sounds like most people I know with a college education. Uh, the now, now listen. There is a new Prexies. This is opening at sixth and eighth, and today only, just today, they'll be open until about three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. Anyone who goes in and gives the password, they're not giving it to anyone else. This is a fact, and do it quietly. Just say Excelsior. They will bring you out a strawberry shortcake, strawberry shortcake with ripe, fresh strawberries poured over it, 
and covered with a great big gob of soft ice cream. Have you ever had Prexy's soft ice cream? This is real ice cream. This is not, not frozen custard, any of that jazz. It is fantastic, and it is on the house today only. And immediately after the show, I'm going to mosey down and say Excelsior. I'm taking you down there, Jan. I hope you haven't eaten for a week. Any of, any of you people... <laughs> I'll tell you this. Any of you people who are living on a 900-calorie diet, you know, that can be very, that can be very inconvenient, you know. There's 900 calories. I suggest you do this. Come on down to Prexy's today. Say Excelsior. Down this strawberry shortcake, and you won't have to do it for the rest of the week. You're through eating for the rest of the week. It will carry you all through. 900, you know. <laughs> Which would you rather do? Hang by your feet, eat strawberry shortcake, or holler whoopee? Now, come on. Give me the answer there. We're going to put you in a category, kid. <laughs> I would, now, I remember Prexy's on 6th Avenue at 8th Street. It's the new one. And, and, uh... Well, I don't know, you know. Oh, oh, yes, we have another one here. We got right down there, right across from the other paper book gallery, which is on Sheridan Square, is the Pottery of All Nations. Do you know what happened to me the other day? Did I tell you on the air about, about the guy who sent me the Okinawan mugs from, well, all right. Uh, I don't know what to say about this, but there's a girl who works for me, and she did it. You know what she, and she didn't even say I'm sorry. How do you like that? She takes my Okinawan mug, which I had never used. Uh, I had, well, I had used it once. I had guests in my office, and I had coffee put in one of them. And this, this mug was in my desk, and she takes the mug out, immediately drops it. Pow! Busted Okinawan mug. I've got one Okinawan mug now, which was sent to me from Okinawa. And today, Jimmy, with a production supervisor here, comes up to me and he says, get me some Okinawan mugs. They're beautiful. I don't think they have any anymore. I know they don't have any down at the Pottery of All Nations, or do they have some now? I don't know. But if you don't know about the Pottery of All Nations, it doesn't irritate you when you lose something. I mean, something that, uh, you know, it just, would you, <laughs> what, a, what a frustrating feeling. You know that I went all over Europe the last time I was in Europe, and I had a big sketch pad filled with sketches. And I had sketches of Rome, I had sketches of uh, Frankfurt and Munich, and sketches of Austria, and uh, a lot of Roman sketches. And uh, I had worked awfully hard. And the last day, I was on my way back. I arrived in Munich. I was going to catch the plane the next morning for Frankfurt, and then from Frankfurt in to, to New York. The last day, I left my sketch pad on a bus in Bavaria. I never got it back. And you know that thing rankles me yet? If I had it, I probably would have the sketch pad stuck under a lot of stuff, but I still remember. Every time I see my, my new sketch pads now, I get mad. Something irritating. And you know that I have almost stopped drawing since that? Just a fantastic, I don't know, it's a kind of a, a intense disappointment. And, and for some reason or other, that busted Okinawan mug became 50 times more important to me when it was broken. And I have it in my desk now, busted. Huh? Well, I'll fix it. I'm going to glue it together and all that stuff. But it still is broken, you know. But uh, if you're going down to the down to the pottery of all nations, tell them to please try to get me an Okinawan mug. They are magnificent. And if you don't know about the pottery of all nations, this is a wonderful place. 
It's a place, if you're going to make the village scene, just to spend about two hours. And By the way, they always keep the coffee on. You can have a cup of coffee while you're there and fool around and look at the Italian tiles and the German the German pottery and the Danish flatware and all this stuff. And, and, and it's all on rough wooden shelves. You know, nobody, people walk around and kids cry and old ladies push each other. You know, it's, it's, it's a, you, know you, can just, you, can, you can hide for weeks in the back there. They have a lamp section. These old Italian ceramic lamps and all that, all piled up and great big gargoyles and stuff. You can stand around back there and sniff, and weep a little bit and drink your coffee and get away from, you know. It's the pottery of all nations who have never been known to pluck at anybody's sleeve. And uh, they, they have the stuff now. And by, by the way, their prices are, are amazing. They have another store over at 64th and Lex on the east side. They're open also till 10. And a, and a beautiful one across the river in, in New Jersey for the exiles in Paramus on Route 4. The pottery of all nations. And the coffee pot is always hot in all the stores. Now, one, one more note here. No, no, no. No notes at all. I keep thinking whether I'd like to put ads in a car or count the number of cars going past or be a bum. I think I'll pick being a bum, actually. Uh, how about this one? He says, here's one for you to to stick in your hollow tooth. Write a history of the Red Cross. <laughs> How would you like to write a history of the Red Cross? Write a history of the Red Cross. Search for information to shed new light on a famous historical event. All capitalized. Or write a musical comedy. He says, look, Dad, let's level. Half of the guys who write histories of the Red Cross secretly would love to be able to write a musical. He says, and half the guys who do write informations on new lights on famous historical events are doing it hoping that someone will make it into a musical. <laughs> he says, what is this, you know? He says, as a matter of fact, I don't want to write any one of those. I would prefer to write a novel, which I'm working on now. He said, and they didn't have anything down there about novels. It's always write a thing about an event or a famous person. Nobody talks about it. Write poetry? No, that's never understood. That's, that's classified with odd-looking people with strange ideas. Of poetry. Thought you might like to. This is a kind of nice choice here. Uh, Don, which would you rather be? Be the most successful tractor salesman in the country, be a certified public accountant, or be an authority on taxation? Oh, what a dull choice. All three of them you want to be? I, I can't stand any of them. How would you like to be a, a, an authority on taxation? Ugh. Taxes, schmaxes. Oi. <laughs> Like my mother used to say, looking out over the window through her potted geraniums, she'd see old Bruner staggering up on Saturday night with a snoot full, catching his neck on the clothesline as he goes in. He finally falls through the screen door, and she says, Death and taxes and Bruner on Saturday night. <laughs> I'd say, Mom, what do you mean, death and taxes and Bruner? She says, When you grow up, you'll know. Well, to be honest with you, Ma, I never have found out. I mean, it is all a giant conjecture. Which would you rather be most? Come on, you residents of Queens. Your kids are being asked this. Would you rather be the most successful tractor salesman in the world? Of course, you're supposed to say no to that one. I mean, you know, this is slobism, apparently. Uh, you notice they don't, they don't say be the most successful Ford salesman? Because most of the kids will grow up to be that. It's a tractor salesman, the most successful tractor salesman in the country. Uh, be a certified public accountant. Now, that's very respectable. Yes. Be an authority on taxation, very respectable. They don't say be a trapeze artist. <laughs> you know, 
Never, never any... Oh, no wonder guys who go into the arts feel terrible. Do you know that almost every artist I know has a deep sense of guilt because in America, artists are never classified on any kind of... Uh, never. They never put them down on any of these things as, as having a legitimate vocation. This is like things you play with, you know, like cutting out paper dolls and fooling around. Oh, they should do. They should work as an artist for a while. Ooh. I mean, it, it's, it's a lot more than the romantic life in the, in the loft, you know. I can tell you that. And there are many people who are, and I'm not talking about illustrators who illustrate Saturday evening post short stories. That's not what we're talking about. One of, one of my friends, for example, is a successful artist, a really successful fine artist, Dong Kingman. And Dong, Dong uh, says that every time he goes out to sketch, now this man has earned his living as a fine artist for years, and every time he goes out to sketch, somebody comes around and stands and looks over his shoulder. And he says, pretty soon, uh, they'll say, um, you draw? Here he's sketching away. And he says, yes, I do. Uh, well, I draw, too. Okay. Dog doesn't say anything. Then there's another long pause. And then he says, finally, he says, uh, um, well, what do you do for, do you, do you work? What do you do for a job? Says, well, I'm working right here. You know, I work 29 hours a day at this. Oh. Oh. <laughs> and the guy walks. <laughs> There's a bum. <laughs> he works four hours a day at his job, and his union makes it possible for him to stand around for the other four. And he thinks that an artist is a fool and a charlatan, a bum, and a fraud. <laughs> Believe me, no artist is allowed to stand around, because when you see those pictures hanging on the gallery, somebody had to paint them. And uh, there ain't no union for painters. No ten-minute breaks. On the hour, every hour, every... <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. No scale. No scale at all, no. And, and they're not even allowed, as far as I know, they, they don't even come under uh, Social Security. You know? But nevertheless, they're very important people. The most important, probably, that we have. And that, that includes uh, the, the whole crew. Now, now, so what would you rather do? Advise people on personality improvement? Hey, you... You lady out in Staten Island? I'm sure she knows which one she'd rather do. Uh, yes, I like to tell people about their personality problems, of course. But then on the other hand, I've caught several rare animals in my time. <laughs> you know, I've been married twice. <laughs> and cash checks, yes, I love cashing checks. Now that you ask the question, I can't tell really which I'd prefer to do. Depends on the time of day. <laughs> yes, Mr. Shepard, you are the one. <laughs> yes. Uh, speaking uh, speaking of art, I I think that every American knows it to himself and knows something about art. You I mean oh what a cliche! I don't believe that. Stop it, Shepard. I don't. I cut it out. Why did you say that? There comes the old clichésville again. No. Let's put it on this basis. If you think you should know something about art and particularly American art, you should know about the... Come on, put the thing up there. What? Do you, no, no, don't, don't take it down. Leave it up there. No, no, no. See, you took the sign down. Put it up again. There you go. There, there. That makes me feel a little more secure. You should know something about the Art Students League. And the Art Students League uh, is one of the real bulwarks of American art. More, more artists than I know of. By the way, Dong is one of the people who taught there. Uh, some time ago, I believe even... No, I don't think he studied there. I think he taught there at one time. All sorts of interesting people teach at the Art Students League. Uh, people like uh, Marius Cooper, a superb watercolorist, incidentally. 
And if you are interested in knowing something about American art in particular, which incidentally is the leading school today in the world, if you can classify a nation's art output as a school, that uh, something in the American air in the last five or six years has galvanized our artists to become the kind of spearhead of what is... You know, at any given time in history, one nation is producing the people who are influencing most of the other artists in the world. Now, this is either for good or bad. No one, we're not here to describe or dis to, to make any value judgments on it. This is a fact, that at one time it was the French artist. At another time, it was the German artist. Uh, of course, there was a period of time when, when the Spanish, this, we're going back in history now. The most recent big influences, of course, were the French, around the turn of the century all the way on up into the 20s. And then gradually, in the 30s, the American artists began to be a, a world power. Uh, a lot of important people uh, grew to maturity in that period. And even to this day, uh, although there are some signs that it is beginning to taper off, the American artist is the galvanizing factor in world art. That, that their, their paintings are examined and, and, and uh, understood and rejected or accepted by the world's artists. They are, in a sense, the ferment. They're, they're, the, they're the seed around which artistic ferment is boiling today. And many of these people came out of the Art Students League. And if you would like to know something about this organization, they would be more than pleased to send you an, a big booklet. It's about an 80 or 85-page book, and it contains all kinds of illustrations, pictures, and reproductions of the work of the people who teach there. As well, and, and incidentally, you can only judge. See, the, the, one of the things that's interesting about the Art Students League, and I speak here as, a, as an amateur painter and drawer, is that you select the man you want to work with merely by the work that he does. And working with a, a teacher in any one of the arts is a very difficult proposition. You cannot be taught talent, you know. Get it out of your head. This business, you know, with a match covers, you too can learn. Yeah, you can learn to draw, but <laughs> that doesn't mean you have talent. You can't learn it. And working with talent is a very difficult thing. And the Art Students League has a, has a wide selection of people who are really experienced teachers, and all of them are excellent, well-known, and understood painters. So if you'd be interested in getting one of these booklets, just send your name and address to Art Students League in care of Gene Shepard, W-O-R, New York, New York. And uh, nobody's going to be pounding on you. This is purely educational. They're not going to try to sell you any courses any of this nature. If you want to take them, of course, they'd love to have you. But uh, no one's going to be banging on your door and saying, ah, it's time for your life class, Fred. <laughs> Although that wouldn't be bad either. I know some people who can take some classes in life. Uh, Arts Students League, Gene Shepard, W-O-R, New York, New York. And they'll send the thing out to you. No cost. Very few things are no cost. Now, I'm going to ask you some more, some more questions here <clears throat> that uh, you might uh, find... Uh, uh, difficult to answer. Um, let's see. Uh, would you rather be an authority on contract bridge, an authority on soil erosion, or an authority on billboard advertising? Well, that'll hang you up for a while. <laughs> Kid says, I hate card games. <laughs> He says, I don't know what soil erosion is. <laughs> he says, and billboards hurt my eyes. I never was a sociable. 
<laughs> but you have to make the choice, because if you leave all of them blank, you are obviously one of those odd people with strange ideas. Either that, or you're, you're way down at the bottom of the class of the, of the group that can't read. Whereas, actually, the fact is you can read too well. I mean, come on, stand up. It's your knees first to get it, man. Oh, yes, tonight I'm going to be on the Long John Show. I'm going to be on the Long John Show from midnight all the way all through the night. Oh, oh this is the kind of show that makes it. I mean, no time limitations, nothing but toil and trouble, boil and bubble. And, and uh, while you're thinking that over, friends, I hope that by next Monday night you'll have an answer for me. Whether you want to teach contract bridge, whether you want to teach soil erosion or billboard advertising, or perhaps uh, whether you'd like to have friends, have power, or have fame. Uh, choose these things and, and, and think them over very carefully because you're liable to be judged for the rest of your life on them. You're liable to be put in a cat. But yet, on the other hand, everyone wants to be put in a category if they can. So be the first in your neighborhood to have a real big title, a tag underneath you. A friendly man lives here in this house. Friendly, reliable, and one that you can trust. And by the way, he's got his two feet on the ground. He's picked all the right categories.